Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll have the latest on Newark's plan for another Hope Village, an initiative that converts shipping containers into temporary homes for the city's chronically homeless. You do have your own space, right, uh, compared to the congregate uh, shelters that, you know, the city has. WBGO's John Kalish has the story of an American videographer who was helping Ukrainian civilians battered by Russian bombings. Usually what would happen in those situations is we'd fill up a truck with food, chainsaws, tarps, diesel fuel, and we would go down to villages and deliver. We'll hear about the Light of Day Foundation's latest benefit concert in Red Bank and out chat with author Daisy Goodwin about her new novel, Diva, the story of opera singer Maria Callas. The real tragedy, her voice began to go long before it should have done. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. What can be done to help the homeless in Newark and beyond? On Thursday night's edition of WBGO's Colin Show Newark Today, hosted by Michael Hill, we talked about the city of Newark planning to open Hope Village 3, possibly in the West Ward. It's the latest phase of an initiative that converts shipping containers into temporary homes for the city's chronically homeless. On the show, Mayor Raz Baraka says they're proven to be safe communities for those most vulnerable. Mr. Mayor, is it kind of a place where they can go where they can, quote, kind of stabilize their yeah, lives? that's exactly it. They uh, get an opportunity to not be on the street, to not deal with the physical ail- ailments that, that that happen out there, and, and the rest of the issues that they encounter being on the street, the dangers of being on the street, the, you know, the precariousness of it. You know, they they get to be in a, a location where there's folks that are helping them 24-7 with security and lighting and the garden and trees and all these other things. So uh, it's an incredibly different environment than what they're used to. The city's Office of Homeless Services Director, Louis Eulario, was also on the show. You do have your own space, right, uh, compared to the congregate uh, shelters that, you know, the city has. It's a difference. It makes a big difference for, for the folks that uh, the mayor mentioned that, that are sleeping um, on the streets in our communities because they, they just been either traumatized, hurt uh, or, you know, or, or just been impacted by uh, many of the things that, you know, some of the folks unfortunately go through in these shelters like violence and, and things like that. Mayor Bronca says shipping container homes are being considered as an option for a future affordable housing community in Newark. If you missed Newark today, you can always find it streaming at WBGO.org. A video director for a major American rock band was so moved by the plight of civilians displaced by war in Ukraine that he went there to volunteer. During his time delivering survival supplies in a small village, he met a teenager whose home had been destroyed by Russian bombs. When the director came back to the U.S., he created a music video telling the story of the teen and his town. WBGO's John Kalish picks up the story from there. The Utah-based video producer Ty Arnolds has worked with the band Imagine Dragons for a dozen years. Arnolds is 45 and he spent three months last winter volunteering in Ukraine. I'm getting middle age and I want to do something substantial. I do lots of music videos and I do lots of commercial work and it's not helping the world exactly. And I felt like I have the time. I'm going to go down there. I'll go do it. Arnold's did media work in Ukraine, but he also did something far more dangerous. I would go with smaller humanitarian groups and deliver 
survival supplies to frontline, to recently liberated villages. Usually what would happen in those situations is we'd fill up a truck with food, chainsaws, tarps, diesel fuel, and we would go down to villages and deliver because they're in really bad shape, very, very bad shape. Working with a Ukrainian man named Igor, Arnold spent three days in the city of Bakhmut while the Russian mercenary army known as the Wagner Group was trying to take the city. Arnold's is a practitioner of the meditation technique known as mindfulness, in which you focus on being in the moment. In Bakhmut, he says, it came in handy as a way of coping with the terror of Russia's aerial bombardment. They took the city maybe four weeks after we were there. So it was just artillery fire coming in the entire time. It was like the most bizarre Zen experience because all you want to do is be present to hear where is that noise coming from? I'm still here. I'm still alive. It's like moment to moment. I'm still here. That was just so terrifying. At one point, he and Igor made a trip to a tiny village in the south of Ukraine called Novo Grigorvika, where they met a teenage boy named Sasha. The teenager had lived in a house with his single mom that had been destroyed by a Russian bomb. He's walking around by himself. So I went up to him and I asked him, who are you? Where's your parents? And I got a story and I just started filming it. And that's kind of how I met him. The videographer filmed Sasha's bombed-out house and the ruined village. When he got back to the U.S., Arnold says, members of Imagine Dragons broached the idea of using the footage in a music video for their song, Crushed, which is exactly what happened. The music video shows Sasha walking around his bombed-out village and inside his ruined home. After it was released, offers were made to buy Sasha and his mother an apartment in a Ukrainian city. But then the video was screened at an event organized by United24, an official Ukrainian organization that's raising charitable contributions for the war-torn country. An executive of a store chain called Aurora was at the United 24 screening, and his company rebuilt Sasha's home. Aurora also built a bomb shelter nearby. Sasha and his mother were transported to Warsaw, Poland last summer for an Imagine Dragons concert before 60,000 fans at a soccer stadium. During the concert, the band's lead singer, Dan Reynolds, mentioned the continuing war in Ukraine. There are people fighting for freedom, people fighting for their homes, people fighting for their country, people fighting for their town, their village. When Sasha was called up to the stage, he was greeted with thunderous applause. The video producer Ty Arnold says he can't get the images of destruction in Ukraine out of his head. Literally every day I think about what I saw. Here I am, I have heat, I have electricity and all that stuff. And I know over there, 
there are villages that don't have any of that, that have been completely destroyed, and I feel some sort of responsibility for doing something about it. And so Arnold and some filmmaker friends have started a small nonprofit called the Ukrainian War Relief Fund. They're raising money to relocate civilians who live near the front during the war. Arnold says he's planning to return to Ukraine. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. The main event of the Light of Day Winterfest 2024, Bob's Birthday Bash, takes place January 20th at the Count Basie Center's Hackensack Meridian Health Theater in Red Bank. All Light of Day performances and events raise money and awareness for its continuing battle to defeat Parkinson's disease and its related illnesses, ALS and PSP. The festival began as a one-day party to pick up the spirits of manager Bob Benjamin and has now turned into an internationally recognized tour, the most noted, the Jersey Shore events. The executive director of the Light of Day Foundation is the former trumpeter with Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes and longtime promoter Tony Palagrosi. We had no idea that it would turn into this, and it did so slowly, organically, very naturally. Um, and, and thank God for the, our, our, our musician friends who have always been there for us. And uh, as we say in our mission statement, we utilize the awesome power of music because music is, in fact, an awesome power. And um, it's just grown on its own, and we just kind of go along for the ride and try to, try to steer the ship whenever necessary. Leaving New York City with a tank of gas Got my bag and my guitar, I'm gonna get out fast Going across the border to the Jersey Shore On down to Philly where they know the score Pittsburgh, D.C., Ohio Tell me, pretty baby, do you wanna go On an American ride? Rocker Willie Nile will be one of the headliners of the festival's big concert. We each play, it varies, you know, 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. And for me, I want to raise spirits. I want it to be, I want people to feel good. I want it to be a fun party experience. I want it to be, you know, uh, I, I want it, I want fire. I want to blow the roof off the place. And um, I'm actually going to spend some time this afternoon to think about what I'm going to play this year. I want to wa- walk out there and the audience is so, so, uh, giving and loving you know they make a lot of noise i love them and i've got a great band so i i want to go out there and blow the roof off the place it's it's a great night it's like i was at woodstock the original woodstock you know and the feeling of camaraderie with people light of day is not unlike that you know you've got a room full of people that are there for the same reason they want to have you entertained they want to have fun so, you know, I want to go out there and like have as much fun as possible and just give them everything. I always leave it on the stage. I'm a soldier marching in an army, got no gun to shoot, but what I've got is one guitar. I got this one guitar. 
the power of music. It fills the room, but it's also the love the, that you can feel among the artists themselves and, and how it connects to the audience. Willie, you've performed at this event many times. 2015, joined on stage by Bruce Springsteen. You've had so many special events at Light of Day. Why is this so important to you? You know, I've been to every single Light of Day show. When uh, I went to the first party when Bob Benjamin called me, they're having a party at Stone Pony. And I've been to everyone since, and, and uh, a lot of the ones over in Europe. And what strikes me about it and draws me to it, besides the the, the great uh, nature of it, you know, raising money, you know, to defeat Parkinson's and related illnesses, ALS and PSP, the camaraderie of the musicians uh, is so, everybody's giving, you know, it's like we're raising our voices, playing our instruments for a common cause. It's meaningful. It's deep. Everybody can feel it. The audience feels it. There's a lot of love. It, I mean, the, all the people that come over from Europe, the people from, I mean, they come from a lot of different places, you know, at least the the, the, the Jersey Shore and the tri-state area one. It's, it's, it's beautiful to see, you know, musicians band together. I love seeing everybody. It's so much fun. People play with each other. You know, uh, music can be healing. You know, it's a tough world out there. And I've told Tony this many times that at some point, you know, when they find a cure for Parkinson's, it's going to be a mighty day on planet Earth. And then the very next, we'll have a ma major party that night, maybe a couple of nights. <laughs> and then after that, we'll find something else to go after because it's a really, what are you going to, you know, how much food can you eat in a day? How much, you know, like we don't get rich doing this, but it's it's really enriching to our spirits. Everybody feels it and shares in the joy of banding together for such a good cause. Those who have watched yeah. Willie Nile perform know what a rocker he is. But, you know, probably my favorite quote about you comes from Little Steven, who we've had here on WBGO and as, as a listener uh, and supporter of WBGO. Willie's so good, I can't believe he's not from New Jersey. I love that quote. <laughs> You're from Buffalo, New York, but, man, everybody yeah. loves you here in the Garden State, Willie. I'm so lucky. I, I remember asking him, I forget how that came about. I think I asked him some album years ago maybe it was streets of new york i asked him if he'd give me a quote for the album and right away boom i get this quote back you know uh, he's so good he's not from new jersey i just had to laugh it's so little steven he's so cool i love him dearly you know and it's just uh, it speaks to the brotherhood of musicians my father who's now 106 years old and still doing great still goes to church every day who wow. goes to church every day he goes he's 106 <laughs> no no medication doesn't take any medication you know, he's just like knocking on wood. You know, he's wobbly when he walks. Other than that, and he, his father was a, a band leader for thirty years in uh, vaudeville, and he, he, sometimes he'd often bring the musicians home late at night, midnight. You know, and uh, my father of, often talked about the camaraderie of musicians, and it's around Bob Benjamin. You know, those of us who know and love Bob, you know, who we've seen him suffer through this. You know, I mean, I love the guy. We all do. You know, and he's just fought so hard against this just terrible disease. Tony, now that we've warmed yeah. everybody up to why this is so important, how can they get involved as far as getting uh, tickets and information? Well, first, I just want to say the reason we do this is because there are over a million people that suffer from Parkinson's, ALS, and PSP. Every year, more than 100,000 people are diagnosed with one of these diseases. It affects not only the person who's diagnosed, 
but they're friends, they're families. And two of these diseases, ALS and PSP, are absolutely fatal. Um, Parkinson's, even though it's not necessarily fatal, it is not the way you want to live. And my mother died from the effects of PSP, so I saw it firsthand. We have members of our board who have lived with it and seen it firsthand. Bob Benjamin, the, you know, the heart and soul of our organization, the reason that Willie and I are here talking to you. Um, yeah. We see him deal with it bravely, with strength and, and character on a daily yeah. basis. But his life isn't getting better. So, you know, that's why we do it. Um, we do it so that someday we have the party that Willie's talking about, that I dream about. And uh, I, oh, I would have hoped it would, ha it would have happened 23 years ago, but it hasn't. So that's why we're still here. You know, we're soldiers in an army marching to defeat Parkinson's ALS and PSP. Now, if you want to go to the shows, <laughs> which is the beauty of how we raise money and raise awareness, um, you go to lightofday.org. That's lightofday.org. You can see my entire interview with Tony Palagrosi and Willie Nile on the WBGO Facebook page. The 100th anniversary of Maria Callas' birth is being celebrated around the world. The New York Times best-selling author and the creator of the PBS masterpiece series Victoria, Daisy Goodwin has written an enthralling new novel, Diva, from St. Martin's Press, centered around the love affair between Maria Callas and Aristotle Onassis, which has earned glowing praise as it comes out this week, actually. Wonderful to have the amazing Daisy Goodwin here on the WBGO Journal. Great to see you. Well, it's great to be here. Really nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed uh, the novel. And a lot of us do know the complicated woman and fantastically entertaining Maria Callas, one of the greatest opera singers we've ever heard. But she is so complex that a lot of people don't understand her. And I know you've been wanting to write this novel for a long time. What was it about Maria Callas that drew you to her? Well, I think, as you said, I think, you know, she's often portrayed as a kind of tragic heroine who was undone by men and love. But actually, I think there's a much more interesting story about Callas, which was that she, you know, was the greatest opera singer of the 20th century. She had this incredible career. And then, and that the real tragedy in her life was not the fact that she met Anassis and had this passionate love affair, um, which ended when he married Jackie Kennedy, but the fact that her voice um, began to go long before it should have done. I mean, you know, most opera singers can sing well into their 40s. Um, 
at their best. And, and, and Maria really began to lose her voice in her late 30s. And I think that, for me, was the real, the real sadness of Maria's life, not, not Anassi's, none, none of that, because actually for her, the voice was the most important thing. And in your novel, Diva, you mentioned several times her encounters that people kind of warned her about not only getting involved with a man like Onassis, but mm. that the voice doesn't last forever and you need yeah. to take care of it. So you really wanted to point that out, that there were opportunities for her to maybe take a different path as well, right? I think so, yes. I, I wanted to, to, to start the novel with the sense of a ticking clock, you know, because there's a... There's almost like a fairy tale prologue where she's talking to her singing teacher in Athens and she's, you know, 19 and uh, she's it's snowing in Athens and she's singing in the street with excitement. And her singing teacher says, Maria, Maria, stop. You know, you, you don't want to be wasting that voice, you know, in the snow. You need to look after your voice. You've got to spend, you know, you've only got so many performances and you've got to spend to choose those performances very very wisely because like you know it's like a jar full of golden coins once you've spent those coins there won't be any more and that is something that of course she hears when she's 18 and of course she forgets that until it's too late and with Anassis I think you know I suppose it's like it's like a Greek tragedy isn't it they're always told don't do this you know uh you're going to marry your mother and kill your father and they go, no, no, I'm not, you know. And then lo and behold, they marry their father, marry their mother and kill their father. And I think it's the same with Maria. She she doesn't look after her voice and she falls in love with a man who is, you know, her match in many ways, but who is congenitally unfaithful and will always move on to another thing. Your novel is is full of details. You're such a wonderful writer. And when you take us through you know, the conversations that they had. Now, this is, a, this is a novel. I know you've taken some, you know, some liberties, but you really feel like you're on the yacht, Christina, you know, when, <laughs> when, when you're following through this from eating caviar to whatever it may be and, and, and the tension and the, and the kind of first kind of glances at each other that Onassis and, and the diva have. I'd like you to read an excerpt, if you would, for us on uh, page 78 in, in my version of The Diva, yeah. to give us a sense of not only how wonderful you write, but what she was really like as far as she was a very strong woman and you were not going to tell her anything either about how she should act or sing. No, quite right. Anassis turned to Mandagini and said in serviceable Italian, please do help yourself, Signor, Signor Meneghini, and don't be shy. Take as much as you want. Meneghini took a great spoonful on his plate, and Maria couldn't help noticing a few eggs falling onto the lapel of his jacket. Elsa clapped her hands for attention. I want to ask you all a question that Noel put to me last night. Elsa, he said, she put on a theatrical English Noel Coward voice. Elsa, what is the secret of your success? And I said, well, Noel, I have never given any woman cause to be jealous. She paused and got her laugh. Then she turned her gaze to Maria. Uh, and what is the secret to the great diva's success? 
Mm, I wonder. Maria lifted her chin. Hard work, plenty of it, and high standards. I don't let anything obstruct my pursuit of excellence. You sound like a general, said Anassis, licking the caviar from his lips. Maria looked directly at him. Great art is domination. It's making people believe that for that precise moment in time, there is only one way, one voice, mine. Mm. That actually, that last line is actually a quote from Maria. That's something she actually said. And, you know, you've got to love that. Haven't you? <laughs> you, you do, because, it, you know, so many times people when they're in the public eye or when they're behind the scenes, they're different. I don't think she was ever different. I think she was the same woman right throughout. Absolutely. You put your, absolutely put your finger on it. She was, she was always the same. I think she, she was authentic in a way that so many people aren't, you know, there's kind of their public persona and their private persona. But I think Maria, Maria was Maria through and through. Her life is also very interesting the fact she was just born in Washington Heights in New York City this is where she grew up and then eventually, you know, was taken by her mother you know, to Greece at a very young age of 13 and becomes this famous opera star. But her life was filled with doubt because mm. her, her, her life was filled with somewhat fear of the fact that uh, would she be accepted? Uh, some people to this day will say, did she have a beautiful voice? Everyone kind of agrees it was an amazing voice, but was it beautiful to hear? Your thoughts on all her struggles with her weight, with not feeling that everyone will accept her, how did that turn her into the diva? Well, I think she realized, I think she wasn't always, I think she was a kind of a normal teenager. And then when she first got to America and, and first started singing and then came to came to Italy, she put on a lot of weight. She had a lot of pasta and she put on a lot of weight. And so when she first started singing at La Scala, she was a, a large woman. And I think when she got cast as La Traviata, you know, the consumptive heroine of Verdi's opera, a woman who is literally wasting away, I think she thought, you know, I want to give the best performance I can do, and I'm not sure I can do that if I'm 220 pounds. So she went on a very strict diet. It was a, I think she ate a lot of steak to tar, and she lost a lot of weight. She lost about 60 pounds, and she came out of that, you know, the ultimate diva because not only did she have this astonishing voice, but she also looked extraordinary. And this was a time when most opera singers were statuesque and she was at that point slender and you could easily believe that she was you know wasting away from consumption or you know she she, she looked the part and I think there is a story that she went to see Roman Holiday the movie with um, Audrey Hepburn and she came out of it and said I want to look like that so <laughs> that's where she got the kind of inspiration from but I think it was I don't think she had an eating disorder. I think it was about actually being a perfectionist and wanting to look as good as she could for her art. It's like actors, you know, will slim down for roles. And I think she wanted to to look the great diva as well as everything else, as well as sound like one. Yeah, you mentioned Audrey Hepburn. I was surprised in reading your novel 
that mm-hmm. Aristotle Onassis was able to get her to cut her hair because this doesn't seem like a woman that would do anything that she really didn't want to do, but she really did want to please him. She wanted to please him, and that's why I, w- I wanted to show that this is, this is you know, the lengths to which she'll go to for him, you know, that she wanted to stop being the imperious diva, stop being the woman in control of the stage and be, you know, the woman who buckles, you know, does what her man tells her to, you know. And and I think he also made it sound, you know, he said, you look like a Greek grandmother. Well, that, you know, that is a... That's a bit of an insult, I think, if you're if you're if you're not a great grandmother. I mean, nothing wrong with looking like that. But so I think she, and you know, and it's interesting when when Anastas left her, she grew her hair again. So it didn't last long. When we think of the famous operas that she was involved in, best known for Norma and Tosca, did you go back and listen to those before writing this novel just to get a, a feel of? of that energy because when you talk about the operas it sounds like you were in the opera houses yourself listening (laughs) as she was performing because it is so descriptive and and you get that's the wonderful thing about the the way you write and why you're a best-selling author is that we you know we can taste we can smell we can feel everything that's going on with the characters Oh, that's so kind of you to say so. I, I certainly, not only did I listen to the operas before I started writing, I, I listened to them while I was writing. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, you know, I had a great soundtrack. You know, I was very, very involved in the music. And I really wanted the reader to feel that they, you know, that they were there in the opera house, that they were sort of really experiencing it, because I think that's the, the most important thing about Callas is to get the sense of her as a performer. What a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You were a great interview, and I'm so pleased I've converted you to opera. That's fantastic. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.